0: intersection of technology cybersecurity and society welcome to ITSP magazine podcast radio you're about to listen to a new episode of audio signals get ready to take a journey into the known the unknown and everything in between recorded at no specific point in time nor space ITSP magazines co founders Marco Cipelli and Sean Martin follow their passion and curiosity as they venture away from the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society to discover new stories worth being told. Knowledge is power, now more than ever.
1: Okay, here we go. We are on Audio Signals. This is Marco Ciappelli with ITSP Magazine. And as you probably know by now, this is the channel where we talk about whatever, capture our attention, and most of the time, it's still to connect with technology uh, and, uh, and humanity, because it's kind of like in our DNA, and uh, when I say R, it's usually Sean and I, but again, today, I'm going to be flying solo, except that, of course, I have a guest, and our guest is uh, Susie Shihi, and she's joining us from... Down there, on the other side of the world, compared with down where under. I am, down under, <laughs> <laughs> and so welcome to welcome to this show. I usually do a little bit of introduction, but you know I'm so excited about this book that we're going to talk about today that you wrote. And what you actually do is not just that you're a writer; you you're a physicist. So I'm already like have a lot of questions already. So
2: thanks, go, thanks for having me on. It's, it's oh, really nice to meet you.
1: <laughs> absolutely, like I said, it, it's exciting and. Um, I just want to get to know you and why you wrote this book, which I believe I understand is your first book. So It is, yep. That's great. So we want to know what you do, who you are, and what motivates you maybe to yeah. get the pen or the computer, or I don't know how you wrote it, but, you know, to get this <laughs> Mostly <down>.
2: computer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so uh, so I'm I'm Susie. I'm um, a physicist, uh, particularly an experimental physicist, uh, and I work with uh, the big machines that underpin our modern experiments uh, toward. the the nature of the fundamental nature of matter in the universe. So I work on machines called particle accelerators. Uh, so I do research, but I'm also a science communicator. And this book, which I'm just going to wave here, because you mentioned it, it's called yeah. The Matter of Everything. Um, it's my first book. And really it was born of this uh, knowledge that I came across, which was this idea that our quest to understand the nature of matter out of necessity has had to involve experiments, uh, most of which have happened in the last 120 years, and that those experiments and discoveries have led to so many amazing things in our society, both technologies, but also the methods we use to collaborate and to even communicate um, have come from this field. And so I sort of knew this parallel story of fundamental physics exploration and this sort of wider story about society and technology and humanity. And I just felt like that was a story that needed telling in the world because it was just my driving force in my own work. And um, it seems that other people have resonated really strongly with that.
1: Well, I mean, this is, again, it, we were chatting before start started recording on how most of my conversation, are, they usually get philosophical and around technology. So in this case, I, I love the fact that you... It's not just a book about theory, but it's a book about experimentation. I was reading the summary and Mm. I'm definitely going to download it and listen to it um, because I'm really curious to to see what you talk about on top of your introduction now. But I want to start with something that the title. So Mm -hmm. I could not not read the title and think about Stephen Hawkins and the movie, The Theory of Everything. (laughs) And so I kind of like, I was like, okay, so the matter of everything, did did you have like Stephen Hawkins in mind when you wrote this or?
2: Yeah, so it's interesting. I guess uh, it's kind of a play on words, right? Between, Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, literally because matter is in everything. Um, But then also, The everything can also refer to everything in our society and and all of our lived experience outside of something as esoteric as particle physics, which is sort of the major field that that I work in. Um, And, you know, the matter of... That being like so the so what, you know, the the why should you care, the how does this affect your everyday experience. So I didn't necessarily have Stephen Hawking in mind, although good point. Um, that that, that movie, that yeah, there's a there's been a bunch of movies and things about everything, I feel like, in, in recent years. And so this one is about matter and everything. <laughs> and the subtitle um is probably a bit more explanatory, actually. The subtitle is how curiosity, physics and improbable experiments change the world.
1: And that's what grasps our attention, it's because you think everything is made in science, very consciously, very pragmatically, and plan Ooh. and formula and maths. But then you read, and I, I mean, I've read some some of the stories that are probably not the one that you share, but I want to hear where it's kind of like you were looking for something, and then you found something else, and that right. was good, right? <laughs> yeah. So,
2: sometimes transformational. Yeah, I think that's um that's also where the power of experiment really comes in. I mean, it's pretty hard if you're writing down equations to accidentally stumble upon something, right? Um, but when you're working in the real world and you're working in a lab, those serendipitous things tend to happen a little bit more. I, I think the other key reason I really wanted to focus on experiments is because if you walk into the popular science section of a bookstore, you would get the impression that physics is only theoretical because There usually isn't a single book that explains how any of the stuff was discovered. So, you know, someone can talk about general relativity and then on page 374, it will say, and this was verified in 1927 or something. And you're like, how? How did that that happen? Um, Just like with the stories of our understanding of matter and particles and particle physics, People, you know, refer to these amazing theories that we now have, like the standard model of particle physics. And I read these stories about this amazing theoretical progression. And I I was almost offended when I'd find, you know, it's almost like a footnote that says, oh, and this particle was found in 1946 or something like that. But the stories behind how we find these things um, and that history told through the forward direction is much more interesting and often a lot more yeah, serendipitous and unexpected than you might imagine. So very early in this process, in like 1896, um, one of the early researchers called Willem Röntgen, who was a, a German physicist, he was working in his, his lab and he was working with these tubes called cathode ray tubes. So it was like a glass tube with electrodes in it and there were these glowing green rays inside the tube that no one could really explain. And he was working with one of these one day and across the side of his lab, he saw this screen that was glowing, and the screen was um, like a fluorescent screen that lights up when uh, when different types of uh, radiations hit it. And so he he realized that this was not an accident, and he decided to investigate. And so he you know he turned the machine off; the light would go away. He turned it back on. And he realised, he sort of gave up on looking at what was happening in the tube and realised that this thing that was happening outside the tube was something new and dramatic and something that no one had talked about before. And he spent seven weeks in the lab putting different things in the way of this uh, this new beam, um, sending it through the door, putting it through his hand. And when he put it through his hand was when he really realised what was going on, um, which is that he could see the, the bones uh, clearly but these rays were passing straight through the soft tissue of his hand. And so what he discovered was what we now call x-rays. And you sort of think, well, today, if I was working in a lab, well, first of all, everything would be probably neater. So there wouldn't be something sitting across, (laughs) some device sitting across the room that that lit up. Um, But also, you know, we may be under so much pressure that we go, oh, there's something lighting up over there. Oh, that's some effect I don't understand. Okay, I'm going to ignore that and stick with my original experiment. And so this is why this idea of doing experiments goes beyond just taking an idea from theory and building something to test what we've already predicted because our imaginations are pretty limited, actually, in how we can conceive the universe works. And so one of the skills an experimenter has to have is to understand the theory but always keep their mind open to the idea that, A, the theory might be wrong, and, B, they may be able to observe or measure something in the lab that has never been predicted before and that's the way that at least some of our discoveries have been made some of them are intentional you know you really go after a specific thing but this other more serendipitous route is one that i think we've almost forgotten to appreciate a little bit
1: so let me let me ask you this because i'm thinking is it like two different mindsets that you apply like you is there like someone that is just more theoretical and another one that is more hacking mentality hands-on and, yeah. and do things it's like
2: yeah I think a lot of people don't realize that most physicists kind of fall into one of two flavors the sort of okay. theoretical flavor or the experimental flavor and that they do cross over um, and especially in the early days people often did both um, but usually you're sort of working in one mode or the other you're sort of in the lab testing something or you're sort of working through the equations and trying to figure out, okay, well, based on this data or based on this idea, uh, how can I predict what would happen in in some mathematical way? Um, But nowadays we really do even train, like, you know, the courses that we do here uh, in my university, um, we even have sort of a theoretical physics track, right? So people who are really going to become theoretical physicists and develop new theories um, have to do, Uh, more mathematics and more training in that than the people who are going to be experimentalists. But the experimentalists have a whole other series of skills that they need to learn. So, you know, in the early days, I would have, if I was an experimentalist, then I would have had to learn how to blow glass. Because mm. to build my own apparatus, I would have had to, to make it myself out of glass. Today, that's more like I need to know how to use a uh, computer-aided design program to uh, do a first-order design of something and then work with an engineer to understand how to machine something to a precision of a single micron, you know. Um, so, so the skills have changed. Uh, But, you know, I have to understand things like cryogenics. I have to understand the properties of materials. I have to know how to use uh, electronics and how to design electronics. Uh, I even have a crane license. This surprises people. But I I have a crane license because sometimes I need to crane heavy equipment in my lab and move it around. Um, Probably the only woman I know with a crane license, to be fair.
1: (laughs) That's pretty cool. I mean, I like that. So. Yeah. So you're talking about like cranes. So you're talking about moving big machines. And, mm. you know, you say um, accelerator. So you, you work with like the the CNR in like Switzerland where there is the, the particle yes, accelerator. Yes, so I collaborate.
2: Yeah, okay. I collaborate with, with CERN. And um, that thing is a loop that is... One.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that loop is like what kilometers long? Right?
2: Twenty-seven kilometers in circumference. Yeah, All so right. that's kind of the pinnacle at the moment of of this field.
1: Yeah. So he, here is the question. So, and you study the smallest particles in there. So you need big machines to study mm-hmm. something very very small. So why everybody may understand a cathodic tubes or a glass or Chemicals and chemistry and all of that and hands-on. We thought at a certain point, and I saw that in the notes. And I was actually very fascinated by how we thought we knew everything and then we don't, right? So yeah. at the end of the 1800, we thought we had it all down. We, I guess, with Newton and and so forth. And then we started going into, you know, when I look at quantum physics now, it's right. it's so out of my mind. I was reading a book about the simulation theory and, and mm-hmm. there is a reference on, you know, the, the, the atoms and the, um, the quantum that works in a, in a twin way or mm. the, the double of imposition and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. I just can't even grasp it.
2: Can, can you, I, can I tell you a little story about yes, of the early, some of the early quantum experiments? Yes. Because, cool. um, so what, one of them I, I, researched a bit. So, uh, in these very early days of the proposal that, that nature might have a sort of quantum nature, um, the uh theoretical physicist Max Planck sort of solved a a theoretical problem by by putting in this trick whereby he said that um you know energy might come in in sort of chunks uh or quanta as we call them but he didn't think it was actually how the universe worked uh, but then Einstein a few years later realized that if he took this concept and he applied it to a particular experiment that I'll talk about um he realized he could explain exactly how that experiment might work in a theoretical way. Um, based on the idea that that light in particular uh, came in like specific uh, chunks. And this was kind of motivated for him by this idea that like everything else in nature we treat in a particle Like way so if I think about how our theories of gravity work it's based on on particles moving with forces between them electromagnetism particles moving with forces between them even waves like you know water waves is based on you know the motion of individual um, molecules Uh, sound waves are molecules moving you know with pressure waves through air even our understanding of temperature was based on the movement of tiny particles and and that being a cause of temperature and pressure and Einstein was determined to be like well why why do we describe light differently why doesn't light consist um of discrete uh pieces uh the, these quanta and so he developed this theory and there was an experimentalist in California whose name was Robert Milliken who was sort of new to the game he was a new had a new lab And he thought he was failing as an experimental physicist because he was doing these experiments where you shine light onto a metal plate and electrons come out. And it's called the photoelectric effect, uh, which is literally just converting the light from the the photons. Uh, So now we know it's photons or the the energy from the light to the metal, to the electrons, and then they, they jump out if they have enough energy. But the classical theory before Einstein's theory didn't make any sense to explain the experimental results. And so Millikan comes across Einstein's uh, proposal and these new ideas of quantum mechanics coming in. And like many people at the time, he did not believe that it was how nature worked. It was really hard to wrap their heads around, just as it's really hard, what you were saying, it's hard to wrap your head around this idea that there might be some smallest chunks of energy or that light might not be a wave as it was sort of thought to be for, for a long time. And so he spent 12 years in the lab doing experiments on this idea and every he perfected his apparatus you know it was this complex thing in a vacuum chamber with like spinning pieces and metal you know different metals and different lights and uh, he'd measure it all and after 12 years he gathered the best evidence yet that showed that einstein was right um and it was funny because even then he still couldn't admit to himself that nature might work this way. And he was like, well, you know, okay, the experimental results do seem to uh, agree with the predictions of this theory, but he wouldn't say that, you know, his conclusion was that, uh, you know, light was actually made of particles and it took him another, I think it was 10 or 11 years after that until he was awarded the Nobel prize, partly for these experiments before he then changed his tune. And then he said, Uh, in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, you know, he starts out with this thing of when I set out to prove Einstein's theory of the photoelectric effect, blah, blah, blah. So he made out like he tried to prove it all along. Um, But Mm. actually, you know, he and many other people had been struggling for decades just to accept this idea that nature might work in this counterintuitive way and that, you know, light might be made of sort of particles and waves at the same time. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I don't know. And some somehow that the uh, it would make more sense. I mean, when you look at things in the bigger things, and you know, it's like okay, it's a table, and then you start looking at quantum, and like yeah, but it's not really there, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of like okay. But then to go back to my question, like when when yeah. you, why do you need to? It sounds to me like the experimentalists are inventor. Like you really need to come up mm. with something. And and how is it you need such a big machinery? to work on something so small it's almost like the opposite like so can you can you tell me what's the yes the sauce there the secret sauce there
2: (laughs) yeah so there's kind of um there's sort of a transition point at which things have to get bigger and bigger so Mm. if you want to get inside the atom and this is where it was in the early days inside the atom down to the level of the nucleus which they knew was this tiny tiny bit at the center of the atom so that was the original motivation for building these Big machines called particle accelerators boosting particles up to high energy like a high energy projectile and then the original idea was that sort of intuitive idea of this idea of a high energy thing coming in with enough energy to overcome the electrical repulsion getting into the middle of the nucleus and then something would happen and that was the very early experiments starting in about 1932 when they first managed to do that with protons um, onto lithium and they split split the atom for the first time that lithium then created two different helium nuclei uh, and that was an amazing thing because they thought "Oh, oh my gosh here we go we can get particles into and explore the dynamics of the nucleus so that's one thing but as you try to explore smaller and smaller objects so the things inside the nucleus for example you have to get to higher and higher energies but at some point you're no longer just going inside the nucleus and pinging things at what is already there. At some point, we have to then rely on Einstein's e equals mc squared instead, right? So now, what we do is we have these big colliders where we have two beams at high energies, and they're coming in. And in physics, uh, all of that energy of both beams coming in both directions uh, can be used uh, to do something new. So. Instead of just looking at what is already there inside the atom, we're now creating new particles that weren't there already, mm. uh, and so so that the conversion rate—if you take all this energy that's coming in, including the mass energy—all those original particles, you know, when they collide, had if a, if one of them collides head-on, they're gone. They're just con- like pure energy at at some point, right? Uh, and the conversion rate is from E equals MC squared, which is only a rough equation there's a more precise <laughs> version but we'll go with it uh, we'll go with it uh, okay. the conversion rate is c squared right which is c c squared is a huge 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 number uh, so you're not going to be able to generate much mass in fact to generate a high mass you need a very 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 high energy because of this terrible exchange rate of c squared mm. um so that's why now if you're trying to create something which is either very rare or has a high mass, but isn't there in the initial collision. So the Higgs boson, for example, is quite a heavy particle. And because it's heavy, that requires more and more energy to be put into the collision, which is why the machines have to keep getting uh, bigger and bigger, because we're limited in how strong, how strong we can make a magnet to bend the beam around, which is why they keep getting, getting bigger and bigger. So it's, it's slightly conceptually different to sort of a collision where things come out of it uh, that were already there. And a friend of mine likes to describe this as if you're colliding apples and instead of getting out pieces of apple and the pith and the pips and the skin, you're getting out three bananas and a mango. <laughs> like it's something completely different that wasn't there in the first place. <laughs> right. And that's
1: kind of like how much it kind of blows your mind. It's almost like it, it sounds magic. Now, you know, I, right. I'm thinking like Clark, like if you don't know how it works, it, it's probably magic. Or- but if you know how well, that, it works it's not like magic
2: <laughs> that's the thing and 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 the magic in there is really yeah the development of all, all of this understanding of how these different forces and all of that energy can go into these this creation of new particles and the different rules of what you can do and how what the probability of it is um and then also of course the experimental techniques to actually measure all of that and figure out what's going on are just mind blowing
1: so here's the the big question and that's why we need to build really big stuff because we need to create so much energy. So the, the question that I may I may have in my mind thinking, what is the audience wondering now? And mm. many time it up and is why? Why why yeah. do we do all these? Like, why do we do in space? Why do we go back to the moon? Why do we spend all this money when we can do all the things a year? And I'm like, because for me it's a way to know ourselves, right? It's in the way right. to know the planet. But you have also this connection in the book about how there is a it, the, the humanity improvement in in this. So can you bring some example of how? These actually take place that probably is in the book as well I'm assuming yeah
2: yeah so let me let me start by saying the sort of the, the the fundamental why is yeah that curiosity that search for new knowledge and I think the important thing here is that we are fundamentally curious as a species we want to learn how how the world works um that is like we should do it even if it had no practical application but beneath that why that people ask is often this question of well so what You know, Um. so we've spent billions of dollars on the Large Hadron Collider. We found a Higgs boson that we'll never use. There will never be Higgs therapy. I say with ninety nine point nine percent certainty, (laughs) (laughs) Um, because it's too hard to generate Higgs bosons to do anything with them. Mm. So why on earth are we doing this? Like, it's not like we're about to to cure cancer with um, with Higgs bosons, right? And what actually happens through this story of this cutting edge experimental work is that because you're pushing at the boundaries of technology, often you're having to invent new technologies or new methods or new ways of doing things. And that is where this kind of research actually has had enormous spin-off in our society. So everything from basically any high tech cancer treatment relies on a small particle accelerator using radiotherapy, which is about 50% of all cancer cases, I should point out, um, all of nuclear medicine, so there's like whole sections of your hospital which are entirely reliant on things which came from um, from particle physics. But when we look more broadly than that, so much of our technology, from everything from electronics to the World Wide Web actually came from this kind of curiosity-driven research just in physics. Like there's no way I could expand out to all the other fields and how that accumulation of basic knowledge has let us build on it over time. Um, in order to innovate and to develop new ideas and to develop these new things in a way that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. So I gave the example of x-rays before, right? If you'd asked, say, innovators in around 1895, the year before that happened, to find a better way of understanding what was happening in the human body when people were sick or, or um, when there was a suspected tumour or something like that, surgeons would have invented a better scalpel right? Mm. Okay, we need a sharper scalpel, so there's less side effects, blah, blah, blah. They would never have come up with x-rays. And and this is where the the power of understanding new things that you could never have imagined actually comes in. And these fundamental discoveries and fundamental types of research, and here I don't just include physics, but sort of all fundamental and curiosity-driven research tend to have this effect of their usefulness compounding over time. So I might discover something over in this corner. And then 50 years later, you know, the computing technology exists and we manage to combine it. And then you get some some new uh, device that can help humanity. And I think what's often missing from these marvellous stories, and they are, they're awe-inspiring and they're wonderful stories about discovery and just the mind-blowing quantum mechanics and the nature of our universe. What's often missing is that Okay, so what, like, has there been anything practical that's ever come from this? And the answer is a resounding yes. And yet, most mm. people do not connect those two stories up. So that's effectively what I've tried to do.
1: So when when you were, were writing the book, who who was your audience? Who who did you have in mind? I mean, I, when you write something, you either an email or or a book or a short story. You kind of like or or a talk, like who who am yeah. I talking to and how, how do I adopt my language? How do I, you know, dumb it down or, you know, bring it up? <laughs> I would know? never
2: say dumb it down. But, no, no um, but I'm
1: saying, you know, like ha- yeah. how I think Einstein actually was the one that, that said, or at least the quotes come up that, you know, you only understand something when you can actually explain it to, I don't know, your grandma or a child and you really right. like own the, the, the subject. So in your case, is that a book for... Everyone that is curious, is it a book for academic?
2: I, yeah, no, no, it's it's definitely, it's for anyone who's curious about it. I'm privileged that my entire publishing team were all non-scientists and that helped me immensely because they Um, were like what (laughs) yeah because they were like now we've heard of atoms but you're gonna have to explain what one is (laughs) because it's like you know for me it's like oh I've heard of Henry V but I couldn't put him in context at all right Right, like uh, you'd have to give me the context if you were telling a story about about him so and as someone who's always done science communication as well as my research that was a fun challenge was to bring that out and and also just bring the exciting narratives and stories of the human stories that happen through this uh through this whole process. so it, in my mind, I guess actually one of the people I was writing for was um, actually my my identical twin sister. Mm. So she's actually um you, know, very smart woman, uh, does amazing things in the world, but she's more in that sort of history, philosophy uh, museum curation space. and she reads voraciously, right? And I sort of thought if if I can write something uh, that engages through the narrative, someone like her to engage with these what are quite complex ideas in physics and she doesn't normally consume um like physics popular science I guess she'd just come to me and ask me if if there was anything exciting she's my sister um but I I sort of thought okay if we can if we can get someone like my sister on board that sort of you know intelligent educator but not necessarily with a science background um that's kind of where where it's aimed at
1: I love it, and I was actually scrolling through some of the review that you had, and uh, you have like Brian Eno. It's like Philip Pullman, the best-selling author <laughs> of these *Dark Materials*. Oh, here's where I so, go
2: bright red and get embarrassed. No, but him. I
1: mean that's that's great because these are not, you know, many times when you when you read about an academic piece, you the, the reviews are from other academic.
0: Oh and yeah. Ah, this, like, is, oh, this is great, book and all. then
1: <laughs> and then you normal. Not non-expert you're like okay this is great but eh, probably not for me but in this yeah. case you have like musicians and you have like other fantasy writers so I mean that, that must be a very good thing it's like you're hitting yep. the yeah. audience. yeah
2: it was it was lovely and actually I got um because I was living in Oxford in the UK at the time when I wrote the book and I've, I've spent a lot of my career there and I still uh have a visiting lectureship there as well okay. um and Philip Pullman and I sort of struck up this little email conversation, and at one point I asked him because a lot of his work has been based on this idea of cosmic rays, um, mm, yes, and mm. and the cloud chamber. So, so the northern lights are sort of mm-hmm. you know very physics inspired um, in his writing, mm. and I I asked him um, whether he's ever actually seen a cloud chamber uh, working in person, which is the very early particle detector which is this mesmerizing device where these like little tracks uh, get formed um, and you can just sit one there with no radiation source and you'll see every so often these little white tracks coming across and now this is a invention that revolutionized physics but I asked I asked Philip Pullman if, if he'd ever seen one and he said no and i was like oh it's just down the road uh you know from from where i was so i actually invited him in to the physics department in oxford and we set up a cloud chamber and uh i tell you what it was like watching a kid in a candy store he was just um, mesmerized and he's such a lovely man um and it was it was just a really uh such a privileged special moment for me as a physicist to be the, the physicist who gets to show philip pullman kind of what he's been writing about (laughs) his whole career (laughs) like who gets to do that right that was really
1: exciting that's that's amazing and it it makes me think about how you know who writes sci-fi or even fantasy fantasy is maybe on I mean Pullman is kind of in between but you know sci-fi I mean a lot of things they were predicting what could Mm. be possible you know like Asimov and and others is you know uh, even uh space odyssey you know there you they now we do have a, a new version of all nine thousand in the chat uh, yeah uh, gtp or something <laughs> <Chat> GPT, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah
2: they kind of predict it in, in a way and then you know it sort of uh, sort of comes true in a slightly different way doesn't it always? Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah absolutely listen one one more thing i mean i i know you have i think uh, 12 experiments that you're telling in in the book yeah. and and many of these are actually women so I know you you are uh, as, a, as a science communicator I'm sure and being a woman <laughs> you know I I would love to know you know wh- what what is your take while you were doing your research on you know wh- why are we still talking about I know right
2: why are we still talking about that I know I (laughs) I know
1: (laughs) but but here we are but it's
2: true it's true here we are (laughs) and I find myself as you know there are fewer than 10% women in my subfield working in particle accelerators still right um and so yeah it's a real it's a real thing and when I learned physics even when I was taught it there was a really obvious kind of I hate to put it this way, but like the great white man narrative, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, almost every scientist uh, that I was introduced to in the history of physics uh, was a white man, almost every single one of them, with a few exceptions, uh, with the exception of Marie Curie, who's like the one yeah. female physicist that most people can can write about. And so I actually didn't include Marie's story in as one of my 12 experiments because I was like, everybody knows about that and my story mm. starts after, after her anyway. But what astounded me is that when I um, read through and because in my research process I really had to dig in read all the original papers of the experiments read the autobiographies and biographies of all the scientists involved or at first the ones I knew were involved and what started jumping out at me were these stories of women so they'd crop up either it maybe it was a footnote and they were thanked in a paper for their contribution or maybe they were an author on the paper and I looked up who they were and I was like who's this woman I've never come across her before and in one case that I still remember the day I saw it was just this photograph of this research group in 1899 in Montreal with Ernest Rutherford who becomes the father of nuclear physics and there's this woman in the center of a photo of a group of men all rugged up in their big winter coats and hats and things and she's just this this stunning woman sort of staring out at the camera and you sort of think well, how could you miss her? She's so obvious. And I just had to delve in and find out who, who she was. And it turns out her name was Harriet Brooks and she was actually Rutherford's first research student in Montreal. She made amazing contributions to um, the early understanding of radioactive decay and half-life and, and the radioactive transformation of elements. Um, and uh, her story, I could go on about her story cause it's fascinating, but eventually she ends up leaving physics when she gets married. Um, the, at one point, she actually turned down an engagement because she wanted to keep working in physics. But up until the 1960s, most people now forget this, women were required to resign their jobs if they got married. Up until like the late 1960s in some places, it's uh, pretty astounding. And so that's pretty limiting if you're trying to be a physicist. Um, yeah, her, her work, yeah, <laughs> but her work, Um. you know, you could you could argue her work was alongside the contributions of Rutherford and, and and others. And maybe, you know, maybe because she was never perhaps going to win a Nobel Prize for that early work, maybe we shouldn't have heard of her. I don't know. But there are other women who I came across who we should definitely have, have heard of. So Marietta Blaus, a physicist working in Vienna in the 1940s, she invented a whole new type of particle detector. She was nominated for the Nobel and with some Bias reviewer reports she never she never won it or lisa meitner who actually coined the term fusion in the first place made amazing contributions to physics she was nominated for the nobel 44 times and didn't get it yeah uh and then biba chowdhury uh who's this indian researcher discovered not one but two new fundamental particles using the Detector that Blau had invented, which is a nice like female to female line. Um, and she's working in India in World War II. She discovers two new particles. First authored nature paper. This was not obscure research. I mean, I wish I had a first-authored nature paper, right? And <laughs> and this discovery, because uh she has sort of second-rate um photographic plates because it's World War II and she's working in India. Um, other researchers pick up this idea, they go and make the same discovery, and they were aware of her research, it's in the, in the notes, um, and then these other researchers actually get the Nobel Prize, and she's not even cited in, in the Nobel Prize acceptance speech. And I have to say, like, I'm not trying to make a pity party here for all of these women, it is like a sociological effect that's actually got a name. Um, and I, I intentionally name it in the book because I think it's really important that we recognize, um, these, the stories of these women and also that we understand why they're normally left out of the history. Um, it's called the Matilda effect, uh, and it's named after suffragist Matilda Gage, who first realized that so many women's contributions are either marginalized, you know, reduced, attributed to somebody else, or just, you know, forgotten about almost because we can't believe that women are making these contributions, uh, and so there was a science historian called uh, Margaret Rossiter who gave this effect of the forgetting almost of women in science, uh, the Matilda effect was ha- what she named it. And the idea of naming it is to encourage people to sort of make sure that when they're doing their research or writing stories about The scientific process and who was involved that we make sure we put these we bring these stories out we put them back in their rightful place in history and we don't just gloss over them because it's too difficult to add an extra character to a narrative and trust me as a writer it's it's difficult right if you've got too many characters sometimes you're like well this one nobody's heard of so i'm just going to forget their story um and then the other aspect of it that was really difficult is no one interviewed them no one kept their letters there's no biographies there's no autobiographies because uh, you know they just didn't have the name and the status that the men had working at that time so that's that's what I tried to do basically is put their stories back in the main flow of uh, of the of the text because it it really mattered to me to discover for myself even as a working female physicist that these women had been there all along and that they'd always been making amazing contributions and that the reason I didn't know about them was a series of biases and forgettings that had trickled down to you know the twenty first century, and I sort of just thought, no more. Like they were there. they were they weren't as numerous as the men, but this idea that women don't do physics isn't even true.
1: yeah, I, I have ton of like ideas with many amazing people in the in the cybersecurity world, in technology, and the question mm. is always the same. Why? Right. And, and yeah. you know, and there's like there is a gap and there is diversity and inclusion problem. And uh, it's it just like, I don't know. I, I personally don't see things that way. So for me, you know, a, a physicist is a physicist. I don't even want to distinguish between a woman or a man or, or any any other gender that somebody wants to mm. promote themselves. But unfortunately, we, we do need to actually put these things out yeah. there because for many people, it just you you said it clear about the the picture in the canadian group and you're like mm. you don't, just don't expect to see the woman there so you don't see it probably because right. you really don't even expect it is a real bias that is in yep. in your head so
2: yes and and that, that's and that's where we're at, you know we're at the point now where you know legally yes of course you know we have to have uh, equal hiring practices we've had all these you know campaigns Um, But actually now what, as you say, what we're fighting here, as it were, we're um, this sort of bias that we carry from this cultural and sociological legacy that's Mm -hmm. happened of of women being pushed out. And uh, if there were a simple answer as to why, I think, you know, if if I could give a simple answer in two seconds, the problem would be solved. It's a very complex uh, issue as to why uh, women are less likely to work in in those fields but personally I do feel it comes down to uh culture and belonging is Mm. is how I would summarize it um Mm. and so I think one of the wonderful things about this process of putting the women's stories back where they belong is that um for me anyway and I have had this reflected in a number of emails from from people and and conversations with people is that it enhanced their sense of belonging in the field uh, it, it, it made them go, I'm not weird for doing this.
1: Absolutely. You know, um, it, yeah. it's,
2: I belong here and I have valuable contributions to make and I shouldn't, uh, you know, I shouldn't listen to these strange societal messages that we've inherited that it's somehow not for me. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I think it comes down to having role model, role model for young, uh, young women, young girl that can look up and say, yeah, this is totally feasible. I mean, now there is astronauts that, our women, yeah. thankfully, you know, one of our uh, hosts, new hosts is a, is a former astronaut. He was on the mm. on the space uh, shuttle that went up after the Columbia accident. And it was the first time that Eileen Collins was a woman commander of the space shuttle. Yeah. the very big thing. And we need to have more stories about yeah. this. But,
2: I agree. It's great to have the, the role models. Um, the only thing I'd say is, like, we really like to reduce it to what we need is just this and mm, no. we've shown already it, it as you know right like no. it's always more complicated than that but I agree we can't go wrong with having more more role models I think
1: absolutely absolutely but so I, I love the fact that we ended up talking about this I know it's important in our society to 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 talk about this as we talk about why we do experiment and why we we study and our curiosity and, and all of that and Again, like I said, I'm definitely in for reading the book or having some artificial intelligence read it to me uh, <laughs> as an Audible or some actor. And, uh, and, and uh, yeah, and just learn more about, about this. So I want to give you one last, uh, you know, light, let's say <laughs> spotlight <laughs> to send a message to, you know, invite people to, to read the book. What, what are they going to get out of it? in the Absolutely. best case I'm- scenario <laughs> worst case scenario nothing but i don't think so
2: <laughs> i think best case scenario is that you'll get to put together these sort of curious questions about the universe and how it works on a fundamental scale, which is so fascinating and awe-inspiring. And you'll get to put that together with the human stories of how it is that people have gone into the lab over the last 120 years and completely revolutionised our view of that, but in a in a sort of practical, hands-on way. It's not all equations. There's no equations in the book, actually, except for E equals MC squared, but you knew that one already. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's really giving you that like putting you in the shoes of the experimenter putting you in the shoes of the people who've walked in and gone uh, Ask the questions about the universe, and then somehow figured out how to do that, and giving them, giving you an insight into their world, and then also uh, bringing that together with stuff that you may or may not already know about our technology, about our society, and about the impacts of how doing this kind of research uh, can sort of have a flow-on effect in our world. And I hope that at the end of all that, when I demonstrate how we've got thousands of people working together across. All sorts of boundaries, including international boundaries of countries that have traditionally been at war with each other. I hope what you'll walk away with is actually a story that gives you some sort of hope for the future in terms of the way that we can work together and collaborate as smart people with different sets of skills and different backgrounds and different mindsets to achieve something that is much greater than what we could do alone.
1: Wonderful. I don't even want to add anything to that. I usually do a wrapping, but you did it so well that there is no need. So (laughs) I want to thank you very much, Susie, for being part of this conversation. I truly enjoyed it. and learned a lot. Uh, We will have notes on the podcast notes, or if you're watching the video, then there will be the link to the podcast where the notes are with the links to so people can get in touch with you. They can check the book, uh, buy it if they're interested and um, maybe you'll get some much more, even more amazing review from people that you wouldn't expect, why not?
2: (laughs) That would be lovely. (laughs) Thanks for having me on, it's been a really great chat. Absolutely,
1: thank you so much. Bye-bye everybody, stay tuned for the next episode of Audio Signals on ITSP Magazine.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Audio Signals,